welcome to Misunderstood, a podcast dedicated to better understanding MS and learning to live well with MS. I'm your host, Katie Sloan. Our usual reminders as we begin. First, I am not an expert. I'm just a person like you living with MS and trying to make the best of it. Misunderstood is based on my personal experience, what I've learned from my doctors, other healthcare providers, and my own solutions-oriented research and pattern-finding obsession. While the majority of the information I share has been vetted by doctors, I am not a doctor, and my intention is that you use the information shared here as a springboard for discussion between you and your doctor regarding your future care options. Lastly, MS impacts each of us uniquely. I hope to shine a light on a wide range of approaches and strategies for living better with MS. But what you choose to do with that information is always your choice, and what works for one may not work for all. Today, we're going to focus on a really important topic for us all. Social Security Disability Insurance, or SSDI. We'll hear directly from lawyer extraordinaire Jamie R. Hall, who has helped me and many others navigate the disability process with success. Today, he'll share everything we need to know about program eligibility, the typical timeline and structure of the process, and priceless advice that all of us should be aware of as we contemplate our future employment needs and opportunities. Before we get into that conversation, I want to share just a little bit about the MS community in general and a few clarifications regarding available disability programs. First, why is this such an important topic for us to discuss? Well, most people with MS are diagnosed between the ages of 20 and 45, which is considered the prime of our working lives. While many of us are able to continue working for some time post-diagnosis, and some even continue on to work a full career, sometimes we're not all so lucky. So let's look at a bit of the data. Since so much about how MS will progress for each of us is unknown, it's smart to be prepared, and hopefully you'll never need to know this information. If in fact at some point you do, you'll be glad you took the time now to be informed early on so that you can rest assured that you'll confidently know how to navigate the process if that time ever does come for you where it's a necessity. Data shows that about 70% of people diagnosed with MS leave their job within 10 years of diagnosis. So this is something that might just be more important to us than we might initially think or hope. First of all, what is disability insurance? It took me a long time to fully understand the different disability programs. I often confused SSI with SSDI, so I want to clarify those here. Keep in mind that it's possible to qualify for both, but there are some key differences. SSI is Supplemental Security Income. This is considered a type of welfare benefit for people who have either never worked or have not worked five out of the last 10 years. To qualify requires proof of disability and the inability to work for a minimum of the next 12 months. There are also limited income and limited liquid assets parameters. 
SSDI, or Social Security Disability Insurance, is considered an insurance benefit and is not a welfare-type benefit. There are a variety of different qualifiers that I'll leave to Jamie to explain. In 2016, the MS International Federation's Global MS Employment Report released survey results that reported that of currently employed folks living with MS, 27% were considering leaving their employment, while 73% planned to remain employed. This seems about right when I think of the statistics I've encountered in the different MS communities I'm a part of. And another statistic I've noticed, 100% of us want to work for a typical length career. Sometimes, however, that's just not possible. In the same study, some of the most common factors that played into the decision to leave work were reported as pain, fatigue, depression, anxiety, loss of self-efficacy, personality changes, and lack of the ability to cope. Some of the earlier MS symptoms that can make work difficult are double vision, partial vision loss, fatigue, slurred speech, weakness or numbness of limbs, difficulty walking, spasticity, or loss of bladder or bowel control. As with everything MS, what we experience is unique to us. And like the symptoms I just mentioned, those may occur to various degrees, frequently or infrequently, and depending on our specific job, they may or may not be a factor in our ongoing employment. However, if we experience vision disturbances, it may not still be safe for us to have a job that includes a lot of driving, for instance. Our struggles with focus might mean it takes us longer to do our tasks. In some jobs, this might be fine but for others, not so much. What's most important is that we don't panic when we first start realizing that our job is becoming more difficult. There are protections in place precisely for this reason. One such protection to be aware of is the Americans with Disabilities Act, or the ADA. The ADA protects our rights to have and keep a job we're qualified to do, regardless of limiting conditions from a disease like MS. It's important to know, however, that ADA doesn't cover everyone. It applies to those of us who work for state or local governments, for private businesses with more than 15 employees, and for people who work for more than 20 calendar weeks per year. The ADA law allows us to ask for reasonable accommodations so that we can keep our jobs over time and, as in our case, our MS progresses. These accommodations are small ways that we can change our jobs to make them more doable and can include things like flexible work hours, the ability to work from home sometimes, the use of unpaid leave or vacation time for medical treatments, special tools or devices to make our work easier for us, some modifications of job tasks, or reserved parking spots that provide easier access. It's important to know that employers don't have to honor accommodation requests that cause undue hardships, and this definition varies depending on the company, what they do, their size, etc. Employers can decline a request if they deem it impractical, if it will cost more than something else that would work just as well, if it requires construction or other modifications that would disrupt their business, 
or if it would cause additional issues for either employees or customers. If we work for the government or for a company with 50 or more employees, we may also qualify for the Family and Medical Leave Act. The FMLA allows us to take unpaid leave for up to 12 weeks a year if we or a family member has a medical condition. The time can be used in one continuous chunk or broken up, which can be useful when experiencing periodic MS flares. It's important we are informed when it comes to our rights and responsibilities in terms of employment. There are a couple of other things worth mentioning. First, if we already have a job before our MS becomes a limiting factor, we are not at all required to tell our employer about our MS. If we end up asking for accommodations, at that point, we might need to disclose some information. For example, if we're asking for a change of hours or new equipment to make our work lives easier, since they'll likely need more information to support and rationalize our request. Now, some people, even before they require accommodations, decide to tell their employer. This is a personal choice and might be highly dependent upon one's longevity at the company, relationship with managers, etc. It can be risky to share too quickly. So however we choose to navigate the disclosure of our MS, what's most important is that we're comfortable with sharing and all the consequences, both positive and negative, that might come with that disclosure. Secondly, it's also important that we remember that MS can be highly variable over time, so our symptoms might actually get better in time. So rushing into a major job change might not be necessary. We should resist the urge whenever possible to make a permanent limiting decision too prematurely. Thirdly, the last thing I want to drive home is something that was a struggle for me, and that is the belief that our value as people is not tied to our professional accomplishments. I'll be honest here that when I was first disability retired, it was a hard transition. I thought that all I had worked towards for so long was all for nothing. I loved my job and often worked 60 to 80 hours a week. It was a lifestyle to me, not just a job. And so suddenly, having what felt like nothing of value to do was quite a shock to my system, especially when I recall the debilitating MS symptoms I was also experiencing at the time. The simple things I had always been able to do for myself that now I wondered if I'd ever be able to do on my own again. I share this because if anyone listening right now is going through this, I want you to know that it can, and more often than not, really does get better. One thing that really helped me get through that dark time was reading a book called Pivot, The Only Move That Matters Is Your Next One by Jenny Blake. This was given to me by a former colleague, also living with MS, who had found her way to high levels of success as an author and independent consultant with a schedule that worked for her. It was this book and seeing her thrive with MS that gave me the confidence and belief that I could, in time, create opportunities that would work for me. And in the meantime, I could volunteer and find other ways to continue to being a contributing member of society. I'm happy to say that just a handful of years later, I have a lot to show for my perseverance and creativity and what I've been building. 
through this podcast, the eventual launch of the True Medicine MS Health Education Program, the local and virtual MS support groups I offer, and yet one of the most important changes I've made is to my mindset. While I believe the things I'm doing are really important for me and others, my self-worth is no longer tied to them. I actually am enough, even if I don't do anything, just because I am. My gratitude this week is actually for our guest, the esteemed Jamie R. Hall. I first met Jamie a few years ago when he helped a fellow flock member successfully navigate the disability process. I had started trying to do it on my own, but was really struggling with even understanding the forms and what I needed to do when. From the first time I reached out to Jamie, I knew I was in skilled and compassionate hands, and it was such a relief. From then on, Jamie and his skilled assistant helped me with everything, and they did so with incredible responsiveness, impeccable attention to detail, and through all our interactions, treated me in a way that allowed me to maintain my dignity, even as many of the required forms and conversations were focused only on my deficits and inabilities. I am not a litigious person by nature, and in fact, this was my first time using a lawyer of any kind. At first, I was intimidated and even a little scared to call. That is, until the moment I talked with Jamie for the first time. Immediately, he set my mind at ease. He was truly there to help. He listened to me without judgment. He cared about my struggles. Words cannot express the relief I felt to be in such good hands. While the process took a while, eventually I was able to obtain the support I needed. I will never forget the unexpected tears of intense relief I shed when I talked with Jamie briefly right after the judge's decision. When I close my eyes now and relive that memory, what I realize now is that a part of me must have known just how good it would feel and how important it was going to be for me to be able to finally pay off loans and dig my way out of the massive debt I had incurred by not being able to work and by trying to live in one of the most expensive areas of the country, even though I'd somehow been able to manage to live there my entire life up until MS made it impossible. The good news is that by moving away and saving money so that we could live off one salary, we found something even more valuable than living near friends and family, serenity. I want to acknowledge here that I was incredibly lucky and privileged to have a small safety net of loved ones who made sure I was okay and cared for during my long financial drought. Not all of us have that, and not all of us get to have such a happy ending with this process. What I can say, though, with total confidence is that with Jamie, we all at least have a chance at finding a happy and productive life at the other end of the process, and that he'll walk with us through the process with skilled precision and compassion. If you are someone listening today who is feeling like it might be time to apply, or you've already applied but been denied and don't know where to turn, or you're still working but feeling uneasy that your professional future is unpredictable, take a listen in on our conversation. And then, if it makes sense for you, give Jamie a call. He answers his phone almost every time I call. The only exception is if it's a day he's in court. 
When I email him, I hear back within a day and often much sooner. He's a kind and caring individual who will help you regardless of where you are in the process. While it sometimes feels like we're alone with a lot of what we experience along our MS journey, this is one place we don't have to suffer alone. Jamie is there for us. He certainly showed up for me when I needed it most. He will be there for you, too. Thank you, Jamie. You've helped me get my life back. Words cannot express the extent of my gratitude. Thank you. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce a gem of a human, Jamie R. Hall. Take a listen in on our conversation. Okay, thank you for being here today, Jamie. Thank you for having me, Katie. I appreciate it. All right, let's dive in right away. Let's start off our conversation by having you share a bit about your practice and how you can help someone with MS. Yeah, so we've been focusing on disability claims for over a decade, and we've been fortunate to have about half of our clientele be multiple sclerosis patients. So although we work with all conditions out there, we've got quite a bit of background in how MS works and really the, the non-orthopedic disability model. Um, a lot of attorneys, I believe, get caught up in the, the orthopedic model, which is back injuries, knee injuries. MS patients, their claims don't follow that model. We have to approach your claims and your issues differently than other claims out there. Uh, fortunately, we've worked with neurologists and physical therapists to figure out how to do that best, and it's worked out quite well over the past decade here. Uh, we focus solely on disability claims, whether it's social security disability or private long-term disability claims. And the SSDI practice is in all 50 states at this point. Uh, with the way that the federal rules exist, we can help people anywhere in the country at the present time. And interestingly enough, since COVID began, all hearings are held by a telephone. So whether you are next door to my office or whether you are in California, uh, we're gonna do the hearing the exact same way through a conference call there. So it's been a, a, a pleasant change for us thus far, as far as that goes. Uh, as I said, we also do some long-term disability litigation as well, depending on the claimant's location and things like that. Uh, so we've been blessed to, to do a lot of work with different conditions, but again, the MS community is really where we've done a lot of our best work there and done a lot to help the community out and everything like that. Excellent. I can certainly attest that you have been so helpful. Tell us a bit about the general requirements for MS and a disability case. Yeah, so there's really two different ways they look at disability claims for the MS patient. But before you can walk in the door and have them ask those questions, you have to show basic eligibility for disability. And when we talk about disability, we're really talking about SSDI, Social Security Disability Income. Uh, it's the coverage that used to get the green coverage sheet every couple of years from the SSA, that same much money you've made throughout your lifetime in it. If you can dig up one of those forms, it'll actually say what your disability benefit estimate is to give you an idea. But that's what we're talking about here today. And to qualify for those benefits, you initially have to show a sufficient work history. And that's typically that you've worked five of the 10 years before your condition becomes disabling. And that's not the date you were diagnosed with MS, but when your condition actually became disabling and pushed you out of the workforce, you have to have worked five of the 10 years before that. And work is a pretty flexible term there, typically means earning over $6,000 per year for five of the 10 years before you leave work. So for most people, even working part-time or a college job and things like that, 
may put you above that $6,000 per year, especially in the, the higher income areas in the country and things like that. If you've shown sufficient work history to qualify, the SSA lets you in the door. Then they start asking about your condition. And they ask about your condition to apply it to your past work and alternative jobs that may be out there. Because the SSA applies what I call an age-based standard for disability. And this standard applies to anyone with any condition. So your MS patient, your uh, back injury, your knee injury, your, your psych issues, whatever it may be. And they split it really into two age groups for our purposes here. And it's below age 50. They ask, can you do any work whatsoever on a full-time competitive basis? And I point those things out for important reasons I'll touch on in a moment here. So again, if you're below age 50, can you do any kind of work on a full-time competitive basis? If you're above age 50, they ask if you can do your past work that you've done in the past 15 years, or can you do other work that is light duty? By light duty, mean, we mean work that would have you on your feet about six hours a day, using your hands, maintaining a focus. Uh, picture a cashier at Walmart, something like that. So your typical light duty position that's out there. Um, the reason I, I, I hammered on the, the phrase of competitive full-time employment, for many MS patients, the number one issue they have is fatigue. And if you can do that job Monday morning, but have to leave after half a day, or could work Monday, but can't work Tuesday, that doesn't count. You, you can't work a job and maintain a position. Under social security's guidelines, you have to be able to work on a full-time basis. So not just Monday, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, five days a week, eight hours a day, 40 hours a week. That's the standard they'll look at there. So if you have to take Wednesdays off to recuperate, if you need to take extended rest breaks during the workday, that can be one way to prove your case, even under this typical disability standard that we have there. The second thing I mentioned is competitive employment. So if you have a, a neighbor or a friend who needs someone to sit at the front desk of their office throughout the day, but you can take a nap break as needed or things that really are not typical for employment, that's non-competitive. So that wouldn't count either. What the SSA wants to know is if you walk in as an applicant on day one, would Walmart hire you to work eight hours a day, five days a week, or some other competitive employer who has alternative options they can look at there? Um, and that's the general standard that applies to anybody. What we look at for the MS community, again, is uh, the fatigue-based issues. Can you maintain persistence and pace at 40 hours per week? We also look quite a bit for people under age 50, hand dysfunction. So remember, they're looking at, can you do a sit-down job, a sedentary position? So issues with walking and gait may not be that important there, but certainly issues with your hands are a major factor. Issues with your eyes, be able to read a computer screen or a page for optic neuritis are major considerations there as well. Um, so those are things, some things we look at for a person under age 50. Once you turn 50, that's when the gait issues become much more important. Because the SSA, again, is going to look at you, can you do your past work in the past 15 years or work that's on your feet? If you can't be on your feet six hours per day, by definition, you can't do light duty. And in that scenario, they just look at your past work in the past 15 years. So we kind of split the decision process there between below age 50, can you do any kind of work whatsoever? And above age 50, can you do your past work or alternative light duty employment there? Uh, there's also some specific standards out there for the MS community itself. 
And it's the result of some lobbying that's been done by several of the, the different MS charities out there. Um, and it used to be very strong language for the MS community. It's been weakened somewhat over the past couple of years, but there are still some important factors to consider. Uh, and these are a backdoor. So whether or not you qualify under the standard we talked about a moment ago, the SSA can look at this alternative backdoor standard just for MS patients. The first and foremost we look at is the need, the medical need for a walker to ambulate. So if you've been prescribed a walker to ambulate, that's a huge factor in a disability claim. And that in and of itself, if properly supported, can justify an approval for benefits. One of the things we talk about with my clients a lot who are struggling using a cane and say, well, I use it, but I can only go about 15, 20 feet with my cane. Well, have you, have you talked about a walker yet? Well, I don't wanna do that yet or whatever it may be. Um, the SSA doesn't say that you have to actually use the walker. It says the walker needs to be medically recommended or medically necessary. So that person using the cane and only going 15, 20 feet at a time or who's walking using their furniture as a crutch essentially, uh, they may have a medical need for a walker. They're just avoiding the scenarios where we'd have to do that kind of item. Uh, so if your doctor's ever talked about a walker, you think that's appropriate, certainly do, to, do get a prescription, whether or not you use it makes a big difference in a claim. Uh, the other major item we look at in a disability claim for MS patients are vision issues. Uh, and as we know, many people with MS have optic neuritis and related items there. If your vision with glasses is worse than 20 over 200 in the better eye, which is a pretty significant limitation, that in and of itself can also justify an approval. Uh, so it's something else we look at there. Uh, there's some other rules and regulations that may allow a, a backdoor approval for an SSDI claim for an MS patient, but those will typically dovetail back to the general standard. So for an MS patient, typically you're looking at the typical age 50 based standard we talked about, or you're looking at, are you using a walker? Or you're looking at, do you have major visual dysfunction there? So typically the three angles we take on these cases and things like that. Uh, so again, that's kind of the, the standard to get in the door for disability, then the limitations they look at and how they apply them to work to make a decision. Um, a lot of people will ask me about the timeline for issuing a decision by the SSA. And people need to know how long it's gonna take so they can plan when they go out of work. They can plan financially, their significant other can plan emotionally for what's gonna go on and everything like that. Typically from when you file the initial claim to the initial decision, it's about three to five months. Now we are working on COVID time right now, which changes everything. But even with COVID, we're still seeing that five month decision period hold fairly true at this point in time. Uh, we have a, a fair number of folks who are approved at that initial level after three to five months. The SSA will essentially take documentation from you, have their doctors look over it and issue a decision based upon that information. Uh, if you have counsel, we can go ahead and talk with you just about what's going on and things like that to give them some guidance They make a decision about five months in. And that decision is basically a thumbs up or a thumbs down as to approval. If you're approved, you get to go on your way. You get monthly benefits moving forward. If you're denied, however, you have to appeal that decision. Some people look at filing a brand new claim and you don't wanna do that because if you file a brand new claim, they're probably gonna make the same decision based on the same medicals, but you lose the ability to claim the period of time that was previously denied. So if I file claim A and I get denied, then I file claim B, 
Claim B can't include the time that was alleged in Claim A. If you appeal it, however, you can still claim that entire window that's out there. And that's called reconsideration as that first appeal. Uh, now we've seen nationwide reconsideration doesn't have a ton of value to it. With all due respect to the folks who are making those decisions there. But just the way it's set up is essentially, they tell people on reconsideration, Susie denied it, adjuster John, what do you think? And John will typically follow Susie's lead most of the time. Nationwide, about 87% of the time among all claims, among all offices there. Uh, so reconsideration typically doesn't get anywhere, but it's a step we have to go through under the guidelines. If you deny it on reconsideration, then you get to go to a hearing. Uh, reconsideration typically lasts about three to four months, by the way. When you go to the hearing level, that's where you go in front of a judge. You can argue your case. You can see the entire disability claim file. It's really where you can do a lot of your best work, either as counsel or as a claimant, to show the SSA what's going on there. The catch is the wait for a hearing is typically between six and 18 months to get in front of a judge. Now that's an improvement and people may be surprised to hear that phrase. We used to have a wait in greater Philadelphia of about three years for a hearing from when you requested it to when the hearing itself actually occurred. The SSA has to their credit worked really hard to push that time frame down to where that wait for a hearing is now closer to a uh, six to 10 month wait down from three years. And it's dropped nationwide as well. Uh, but you wanna typically plan on six to 18 months. If you do the math on that, you're looking at about a, a 27 month wait from initial application to when you get in front of a judge, looking at some of the longer windows we've looked at there. Uh, other people may have it go much quicker, but again, we're talking now for the people who are planning to go out of work, who wanna plan their timeline. And they need to be aware of that possible long wait there and everything. Uh, but if you go through all those stages, that's how you maximize your odds of approval and having the SSA recognize the issues that people are invariably going through with this condition. That is so helpful. Um, can you share just a little about how people can find out about their acceptance rates in their area? Because it's my understanding that that does play a role. Yeah, so there, there's a few sources for that information online. And it, initially, all judges have the same outline for how they make a decision. They all have the same rules. It's a federal process here. So a judge in the, the, the state of Maine would have the same requirements and regulations as a judge in the state of Hawaii or whatever may be in between there. But different judges, like any kind of people, may weigh factors differently, may weigh their decision differently. Uh, we have seen judges who approve 90% of cases. We have seen judges who approve 10% of cases. Again, same client pool, same regulations, different application, different interpretation. Uh, we argue cases to the, the full extent of what is there on every file that we get in hand. But we find it's really helpful to be able to tell a client how much of a challenge they're going to have during their hearing. Uh, we do that in a couple of ways. Uh, number one, as counsel, we talk to other attorneys who've been in front of that judge. So we get an understanding of how the judge runs their courtroom, what kind of input they're looking for from counsel, from the claimant and things like that. That's half the battle here. The other half is simply finding out what their approval rate may be. Uh, there are several sources online for that information. Uh, Social Security publishes approval rates themselves and you can Google that and everything. But those rates can be somewhat difficult to analyze and may also not include full years worth of data 
So if you get it the wrong time of year, it mainly show a month worth of approvals and denials, which may be misleading as far as that judge's overall rate goes. Uh, there are some private sites that have gone ahead and uh, coalesced the data for several years into one place. One of those websites is disabilityjudges.com. And it's something I typically look at there as a, a first source of information. Uh, my understanding is that there are some uh, law firm ads that go through that page. We don't advertise on it, uh, but it is a resource we use as far as the data they include for approval rates and things like that. And again, we, we find it does help to let the claimant know whether they're walking into a 90% judge hearing or a 10% judge hearing. You're going to argue your case to the full, full extent either way, but it does help to have an idea of what that judge is looking at typically. Excellent. Thank you. That's helpful. Now, a common question I hear from people who are still working but really struggling is that they're just not sure when when to make that choice, uh, you know, what to talk to their doctor about, what to do, not do. Do you have some words of advice for us? Yeah, and it, the initial thing I tell people is every case is different. And I'm sure MS patients are tired of hearing that from other people and, and professionals out in the world, but it, it is true. Every claim is different. Uh, there are people who can apply for disability essentially at the day of diagnosis. There are clients I've had who looked for a disability claim 20, 25 years post-diagnosis. And I, I tell those people they're, they're the lucky ones, they're the unicorns who last that long. And that's a good thing for them. Uh, but people should be evaluating how they're doing at work and, and how their level of function is. Uh, what I, I tell them as far as talking with your doctor's concerned, as you're, you're struggling at work and trying to remain in the workplace, you should make a note to periodically just do a pause with your doctor and tell them, doctor, I need 30 seconds with your nurse or with you, whomever it may be, just to go over my symptoms. Because there may be days when the judge is trying, or the judge, there may be days when the doctor's trying to put out the fire that is your gait issues. And they're not writing down the vision problems or the hand numbers that you have. And the smaller items may drop out of the, the record when the small things may mean a really big thing for a claim that I bring on someone's behalf there. So if you just take a brief pause, doctor, I just want to make sure we have these five symptoms there. And I just want to let you know the hands are getting worse. I'm here to talk about my drop foot because that's a real big problem I have, but my hands are getting more numb too, just to make sure it's in the record. That little pause makes a big difference there. Um, we also tell, tell our clients to avoid the cocktail party discussion when they're talking with their doctors. And we all know you get into a cocktail party or, or get on Facebook everything's fine. Everything's good. I'm doing great, doctor. I, I love everything. You've got to be honest with the doctor. And if that means you're having a good day, tell your doctor it's a good day. Tell them it's the best day you've had in the year, if, if that's the case. That way, when they test you and they see that you're stronger than normal, it'll say in the record, doing well on testing, having a really good day. If you're having a bad day, tell them that too. So they can note that in the record. Uh, fine is the worst word you can use during a doctor's visit. Give them some more clarity and more color, not just for legal purposes, but for medical purposes too. They've got to know that to know whether your medication's working, whether they've got to try a new drug for walking or fatigue or things like that. They can't know that unless you give them good data. So just build that rapport. If your neurologist is like many who pops in and out of the visit fairly quickly, tell the nurse. That's what she's there for. She's typing things in. Let them know that kind of data. We also tell our, our, our clients who are, are treating with a neurologist, don't skip treatment or visits without a reason. 
Um, and if you need to skip something, if you can't afford physical therapy, if COVID makes seeing the urologist not worth it at the present time, you've got to let the neurologist know what's going on and why you're making those decisions. Because we find that judges can oftentimes hold non-treatment against somebody if there's not a reason for it in the record. And we can fix some of that during the hearing by having the claimant explain why they didn't do these things. But it's always better if they've told the doctor in real time why they're making these choices and give the doctor the chance to try to correct it, modify things, or write down, no, this is reasonable today. I'm sure last March, no neurologist would have held it against somebody to not go to physical therapy due to COVID. But if you don't tell them that, it just shows up as a no-show in the record. Uh, so we always recommend that for our, our, our clients and everything like that. Moving more towards work itself. You're not talking to your doctor before you go out, but actually when you're working, first and foremost, give work a fair shot. Um, at the end of the day, your doctors, your judge, your attorney, we're going to see what's in the record. We're going to talk with you. We're going to get a pretty good feel for whether you gave work a fair shot or left prematurely. In my office, when someone calls me, that's our first evaluation we do. And that's our initial phone call is whether we think that someone should give it more time or not. And we know that as an MS patient, you typically don't get better with time. The, the function a person has today is the best function they're ever gonna get. It's not our job to take away the possible work today when you're at your best so we can file a claim. If we think someone can work, we'll, we'll respect them enough to tell them that at that time. But give it a fair shot and see if you can do it. Listen to people around you um, and don't, don't follow the people around you, but listen to them. If your significant other has concerns and your neurologist and your boss and your coworker, maybe there's a point there, or maybe not. It's, a, it's an evaluation that we have to make on an individual basis there, but give it a fair shot. And while you're working, see if you can, can maneuver your work to fit the new you. Are there accommodations available? Are there tasks that can be traded with another employee under the rules of the employer? Uh, can work be simplified itself to let you keep on doing it? If fatigue's an issue, a lot of people will even try intermittent FMLA to get an extra day off here or there. I've had clients who, while they're in the, the worst part of their MS, they take Wednesdays off for a few months. FMLA may allow that under intermittent FMLA. So you're working two days, you're taking Wednesday to recover, you're working two days, you get the weekend. It won't let a person stay at work for a decade, but it may give them an extra year or two. And that's a big difference there. Uh, we also always recommend that you, uh, before leaving work, check with your neurologist. See if they support you leaving work. Uh, they're going to be the biggest and most important cheerleader in your corner for a successful claim. Give them the respect to ask them before you leave if possible. Um, those are some important things to think about. But again, everyone has MS occur in their own way. Everyone leaves work in their own way. But you always want to try to give it a fair shot, see what you can do to stay a little bit longer because judges do look to see, did you try or did you just leave work prematurely? And those who tried tend to get a pretty a much better resolution in these kinds of claims. 
That is so helpful. You know, it's so important that we as people of the MS community are really forthcoming with our doctors about how we're feeling, you know, being really honest and, you know, having these ongoing conversations about, you know, yeah, today is a great day, but this is rare. Um, so thank you for reiterating how important it is for us to be really honest. And now I'm curious in talking about doctors, what advice would you give to someone if, for example, their doctor doesn't think they should apply or if they say they don't fill out forms? These are some of the most difficult questions that we have to deal with in my practice. Um, and, and I want to kind of split it up between the, the two questions there. Uh, so initially, a, a doctor says you shouldn't apply for disability benefits. You want to ask questions of that doctor and not just walk out when they say that. Um, you've got to find out why the doctor is saying that. And here's why. Uh, we find it tends to fall in one of a few categories. Number one, and this happens more than you'd think, is a doctor just doesn't know what the requirements for disability may be. Uh, if you're 51 years old and you worked as a cashier your entire life, the doctor may say, no, disability is not for you. You can find a sit-down job. Well, he may be completely right that you can do sit-down work, and you may be completely right that you qualify for disability. You have to educate each other so you know what, what the actual truth is, what you have to prove. Um, and so this is not, not for Social Security, but for long-term disability claims, they look at your past work. And you've got to educate a doctor in those cases that past work is what's key, not alternative employment. Same basic concept here. So you've got to make sure you're talking apples to apples when you're talking with your doctor. And you've got to ask the follow-up of why do you say that? What kind of work do you think I can do? Now, if the doctor says, I think you can do your past work, that's a bit of a different problem there. And generally it's one of a couple items there. Uh, first, it may be that the claimant genuinely doesn't qualify for disability. And the neurologist is the one who has to be the bearer of bad news and give them an honest reflection of what's going on. And that's not unheard of, uh, but it may happen. And if the doctor says that, you wanna ask them more to, to find it again, where they're coming from, why they believe that's the case, Tell them what you're experiencing. See where the disconnect is there and everything. Uh, there are some neurologists who just don't believe in disability from my, my view. They're very good at what they do, uh, but the medical profession is taught to an extent that disability may be a failure on the part of the treater, that they haven't stopped this from occurring. And that can be really difficult to do. Uh, so that may also be part of the case. And if that's where things are at, talking with a, a, a second Neurologist may be appropriate. Talking with physical therapy or primary care may be appropriate too. Uh, we're very careful in my office that the, the legal doesn't drive the medical. The medical drives the legal. We don't, we're not in the business of telling doctors they're wrong. We're in the business of telling the courts how the doctors prove a case with us. Uh, but if you have a feeling that your doctor just doesn't believe people should qualify for disability, maybe appropriate to have a meeting with your, your primary care and see where they're at on that. If your primary care and your, your neurologist both agree that you don't qualify, that's a bad sign. If the primary care takes a different view, maybe you need a second opinion from a different neurologist there. I think it's reasonable in that kind of scenario. Uh, but certainly you wanna have that, that conversation, that exchange with your doctor. If they say you shouldn't apply for disability, you don't qualify. And sometimes it's really good advice where they say, nope, you're still a couple of years out. If that's the case, take those couple of years, work, build your war chest for a disability claim, and then what they say may come true because the doctors are typically pretty smart and pretty sharp at what they do there and everything. 
Um, the second question you ask is, if you're pursuing a claim and your doctor doesn't fill out forms, what do you do? This was somewhat, somewhat rare about a decade ago. Most doctor's offices would fill out forms we'd ask them for. As time's gone off, we've seen uh, a neurologist here, a neurologist there stop doing them to where now maybe a third of neurologist offices will do forms that we ask for from them. In those cases, it's a challenge for me as an attorney and it'd be a huge challenge for just a claimant doing this on their own. There's a couple ways to try to work around it. Uh, first and foremost, we try to get a copy of the neurologist records to see what they're actually documenting. Their documentation may get us 80% of the way there. And if that's the case, that's tremendous. It's a great help. In that scenario, we might reach out to the primary care physician to talk about what they see. If you're seeing, say, a urologist for bladder frequency, we may ask the urologist, how many restroom trips an hour are necessary here? Or a physical therapist, how long can they be on their feet? These other providers that tend to be in the uh, MS universe there, as time goes on, we can reach out to them as well to prove things through people other than the neurologist. Um, if you're seeing a physical therapist and you have significant hand limitations, a great test for them to do is called a nine-hole peg test. Nine-hole peg test. And it's a very simple, very quick test where you're taking pegs, putting them into a groove pegboard or into specific holes, and you get timed on it. It's really simple to do. If a physical therapist does that, there are graded norms you can apply that to, to try to prove your case through that test itself. Similarly, if you're having cognitive issues, you may ask your neurologist, should I get a neuropsychological evaluation? Is that appropriate for me? For many people, it's not. But if there's significant cognitive dysfunction, the neurologist may agree that it's not, it's not necessary because of a disability claim, but it's necessary for your treatment in general identify what you have going on so they can do their job as neurologists better moving forward. We can then piggyback on that neuropsych evaluation and use that to your benefit as well. So there are other ways to go about proving things and everything. Uh, there's various levels of complexity there. There's various levels of cost to that as well. Uh, but certainly if you're seeing a, a set of doctors, we use all the avenues we have there if the neurologist won't fill out a form. Just our hope always is that the neurologist has done you the favor of keeping very good notes and do good testing as well that we can use in your favor in that scenario. Great, thank you. All right, so one aspect of my experience that I wanna highlight as an area that you really helped me with was just understanding what questions were even asking on what felt like a mile high list of, you know, stack of forms. And I'm not certain that a lot of people understand how MS can impact our cognitive abilities for filling out even simple forms. So what would you say to someone who's trying to apply on their own and just really struggling with the process like I did before I reached out to you? Yeah, so it is a challenge. What you've got to keep in mind is that social security sends out all those forms for a reason. Uh, you're applying for a monthly cash benefit for the remainder of your working life. That's a really high value item the SSA is looking at. They've got to make sure they get good data from you to apply to their system. So I get why they're doing that. That being said, the forms they send out can be challenging. Uh, they're certainly lengthy. Uh, there's some portions that are arguably uh, conflicting with each other and redundant. And that gets frustrating if you're a regular person sitting at home and doing that and everything. What I tell folks is take it page by page. 
And don't sit there and say, I'm going to go through all 20 pages at one time. Do two in the morning. Do two at lunch. Do two in the evening. Well, you're six pages in right there. Just work through it page by page as best you can. Uh, don't get frustrated or anxious about it. Just work your way through it. Um, listen to the questions they're asking. And one of the things I, I tell my clients is if there's more to answer to a question than yes, no, that's why there's a remark section at the end of it. That's why there's margins on the page. And not that you should be submitting a 30 page document at the end of these, but it'll say, do you take care of pets? Yes or no? The answer is probably somewhere in between. You may have a dog that you don't walk anymore. You just let out back. Uh, you may feed it, but that's just a small scoop of food you put out every day. And your significant other carries the heavy thing of dog food in each day or something like that. Uh, you wanna kind of walk them through of, I take care of pets, but here's what that means. Same with cooking. Same with cleaning. I don't carry anymore. I can fold it, but my husband takes it down the steps, whatever it may be. You have to give the yes to say that additional color so they can understand what's going on there. You also need to understand that there are reviewers at the SSA who may not look at the full answer there, but that's what hearings are for. And if you've given them good information on day one, it makes it much easier at the hearing stage to explain what's going on there and to be consistent. So you have to think about the, the questions and really think them through. You also, when you do those forms, you do want to think about not your best day, but typically an average day. So if on your worst day, you're not getting out of bed and on an average or on a, a best day, you're feeling pretty good. You want to talk about your average day somewhere in the middle. What's your capabilities there? What are you able to do? And give them that kind of information as well. Um, and for a lot of people, that can get them through the initial application filling out those forms. However, there are some concerns that I would have on behalf of, of MS patients doing it on their own. And I say this knowing that you could argue I'm biased in answering this, so I'll try to answer it as, as tactfully as I can here. Um, number one, I, I see cases that come to me on appeal where the client does dig themselves a bit of a hole, does not answer questions well, uh, does not do themselves full justice in what they're talking about there. And we have to work to try to recreate the wheel once it's been broken there. Um, we also see clients who simply don't turn in forms fully complete or don't turn them in in a timely fashion. And that delay does cause issues going down the road. We have to put back together and everything uh, down the way. Um, on those forms, again, you wanna work through them, you wanna do the best you can, but remember they are complicated. And I say there's a double-edged sword here because if as an MS patient you do the forms and you do them perfectly, there might be a little voice in the back of the adjuster's head that says, wow, she did a really good job on these forms. They're really complicated, they take a long time. Couldn't she do a simple job out there? I saw one form about a year and a half ago where the adjuster actually wrote in, the, in their decision notes, has really good handwriting on the form. And that poor client took forever to write and rewrite those forms to make sure that her, her lines were exactly perfect on that document. But they may hold it against you if your forms are done really well. Well, now look at the alternative. If your forms are done poorly, you can be denied because your forms aren't done well. So it, it is somewhat problematic there. My rule has always been, and I've said this for a decade now, uh, I think at the hearing level, you have to have counsel, whoever that may be. The world just moves too quickly when you're in front of that judge. The preparation requirements are too high. You can't do a hearing on your own as a layperson. The initial level filing, I think that attorneys have value there. We can take away stress, we can organize it, we can make life a lot easier. But some people who want to do it on their own, 
who have good family support who can assist them in doing forms and keeping them on track, they can try it on their own. I don't recommend it. I don't think it's crazy necessarily. But if you do take the step of trying it on your own and you get denied, you've taken your shot at that point, then it's time to get counsel. Uh, and I hope I've explained that in a way that is not, not biased here, uh, just from experience having done it for a long time. I just tell people proceed with caution if they're gonna try to do it on their own. That is very solid advice. You know, I, I interact with a lot of people in the MS community and we, we try really hard. We don't want, um, you know, to be perceived as weak or less than or unable to. And for me personally, that was uh, kind of a double-edged sword. And I had to kind of accept that I needed help. And frankly, you know, working with you, that was my first experience with any sort of lawyer. And it exceeded any expectations I had. Just your warmth, your patience, your high level of care. You just really seemed that you cared about me as a person and you helped me through a really hard time in my life. Um, and, you know, clearly relationships matter to you and your staff. And I'm curious, you know, what really inspires you in this work and what led you here? So it, everyone follows a long path to where they get. Uh, but if I look at where I ended up at, my best calls I get to make are the best calls anyone gets to make. I get to call somebody who has fought MS for some time, has fought to stay at work, has fought to maintain their function. I get to call that person and say, you've been approved. I get to tell that person that a judge who has no relationship to you, has no reason to give you the benefit of the doubt, has looked at your medical record, heard your testimony and said, you know what? You really can't work. We really do wanna do something to help you. And I look at it personally, I pay taxes your family pays taxes. We pay that for a reason. It, it, it's not a bank account. I don't get to take my money back if I get disabled, but I pay that so if an MS patient down the road needs to go out of work, there's some kind of, of cushion for them. And it's not gonna get you back to where you were on day one. And no one's gonna allege that, not on this podcast at least. Mm -hmm. uh, but we know that it's gonna help you get back on your feet to an extent. It's gonna make life a little bit easier for you. And our good days are so good. It outweighs a lot of the bad. And the bad days are when it's taken forever to get a hearing, when someone's records don't come back promptly, when we're fighting with the doctor's office to get some information, when the SSA adjuster we don't think is getting it, or she may think the same thing about us there, uh, but it makes all those days worth it as far as that goes. Um, and I'll tell you that when I first started working with the MS community, and it's been over a decade at this point, um, I was an attorney doing a lot of, of disability work in other areas as well. And I called the National MS Society and I just said, can I volunteer? Can I do something for you? Because I, I just thought it was a great, can, uh, great group to work with there. And frankly, I, I like cycling. So they did a, the MS bike rides they do. And I said, well, I love the MS bike ride. Can I, can I help you out and do something here? Cause it's a great ride to do. Uh, and I got the one person on the right day who was thinking two steps down the road. And her answer wasn't, well, you're a guy, you're this age, let's have you as a bag thrower at the bike ride here or something. She says, what do you do for a living? And I said, well, I'm a disability attorney. And we built a program of presentations that we've done essentially since that time. And it has grown into a practice from there. Um, and again, it, it, it arose from me looking to help people out because I like what they do and I like their bike ride that they hold. 
And it went from somebody who thought two steps ahead to growing into this kind of assistance for people. Um, so I, I tell people that the MS community has done a lot for me in my career. Uh, it's on me and my staff to make sure that we pay that back in full and then some. Uh, and I appreciate the thoughts you gave me earlier today. Uh, it, it really does mean something when our clients have those kind words and have those good thoughts here. And it's our, our hope to help people for a long time going forward, or at least until the, the doctors who are smarter than you and me can get this whole thing resolved and, and fix MS. In the meantime, we'll fix little parts as they do their job and everything. So appreciated. So if someone is listening right now and thinking, I need Jamie to help me, what is the best way for them to reach out to you? Yeah, so the best way to reach out would be either phone or email, whatever works best for the individual. Uh, our phone number, is 610-570-5253. And again, as you're getting your pen out and checking to make sure that it works, uh, that phone number is 610-570-5253. You can also email us if you prefer that methodology. And my email address is jhall at jrhlegal.com. jhall at jrhlegal.com. And what I'd always recommend people do is my website, jrhlegal.com, does have information on me and on the disability claim process there. Uh, I'd never contact an attorney without doing some homework on them. I encourage your listeners to do that as well. If they see fit going down that route or whoever they reach out to, uh, do some background on there. But certainly we've done this for a long time. We'll do it for a long time going forward. And wherever your folks are at, we're happy to help and give them our guidance as best we can. That's much appreciated. Okay, and I have one last important question for you. Uh, Sometimes, and I myself felt this too, that maybe I couldn't afford an attorney. Uh, And I was mistaken. Can you tell us just a little bit about that process? Yes, I can. So the attorney's fees for a disability claim are set by federal statute. So all attorneys charge the same fee across the country, essentially. Uh, It's important to know that there is no upfront cost on this. If an attorney asks you for money on day one of your claim, you should probably look elsewhere. These fees are contingent. We only get paid in the event your case is approved. And if your file is approved, our fee is based on the past due benefit you're owed. So the SSA approves you on June 1st, say you left work a year before that date, they'd owe you a year's worth of benefits to bring you up to date there. The attorney's fee by statute is 25% of that past due benefit not to exceed $6,000. For most cases, it's below that $6,000 threshold. Uh, But really important to know, there are no upfront costs on this. It is purely contingent in nature. And the fee is 25% of the past due benefit, not to exceed $6,000. What a bargain, worth every penny. I cannot thank you enough um, for your personal assistance with my own case, but also just being willing to be here and sharing your expertise expertise with the MS community. I know this episode is going to help a lot of people. I'm so grateful for your time and I'll keep sending people your way, knowing for sure that they'll be in great hands. So thank you. Perfect. Katie, I appreciate having me today. As always, it's a pleasure speaking with you. Look forward to talking with you in the future as well. Great. Thank you. Thanks. 
I hope you enjoyed listening to Jamie's thorough explanation of the disability process. Before we go, I wanted to briefly share some job sites that provide opportunities specifically for people like us who might be looking for jobs with modifications or accommodations that make staying in the job force more accessible. I'll share them here and post the direct links for our flock members on Patreon for easier access. Some places to search, abilityjobs.com, abilityjobfair.org, wearecapable.org, careeronestop.org. For disability job exchange, jobs.localjobnetwork.com slash disability, recruitdisability.org, abilitylinks.org, and for at-home jobs, www.ntiathome.org. My hope is that after listening to this episode, we all, one, understand the basics of Social Security disability insurance, including that we know what to consider before changing our employment status to ensure we're making the best decision for ourselves, our family, and our future. Two, that we are confident that we will know when it's time to consider a change and that there are things we can do now, like being thorough and forthcoming with our doctors about all we experience as people living with MS and understand how that can help expedite the process when it's time to apply for disability insurance. And three, that we leave this episode knowing that we have access to someone who can help us through the process in Jamie. It is said that it's often the smallest step in the right direction that becomes the most important step we'll ever take. And that was certainly the case for me with calling Jamie. What are you waiting for? Once again, Jamie's phone number is 610-570-5253 and his email jhall at jrhlegal.com. There is no flock meeting this Saturday, but I look forward to our next flock meeting on Saturday, April 3rd, where we'll discuss this episode, other episodes released between now and then, and just spend some virtual time together supporting one another as we strive to live well with MS. If you're not yet a flock member but would like to be, join us. We meet via Zoom the first Saturday of each month and when a special podcast guest is able to meet with us. You can learn more and join us by visiting patreon.com slash msflock. As always, I encourage all listeners to reach out with questions, comments, future podcast topics, or guest ideas via email to mymsflock at gmail.com. And lastly, remember, as we travel through life with MS, we're certain to hit some turbulence. We'll get through it, especially if we're flying together, supporting one another. Thank you for listening, and thank you for being on this journey with me. Until next time, be well.